0: It was an industry that at one time employed 700,000 workers, including 200,000 here in the Chicago area. Early workers included immigrants from Eastern Europe, Ireland, Scandinavia, and Italy, who were willing to put in a long and sometimes dangerous day's work at Chicago's steel mills. Gradually, the city's black and Mexican population joined them. Then gradually, and not so gradually, it went away but not before one fateful Memorial Day protest turned deadly. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. According to the Encyclopedia of Chicago, the first large steel and iron plant in the Chicago area was called the North Chicago Rolling Mill and was founded in 1857 by Eber B. Ward. Ward, an owner of iron mines in the Lake Superior region, had made his fortune in shipping on the Great Lakes. Along with partners Stephen and Oren Potter, Ward built the North Chicago Rolling Mill along the north branch of the Chicago River, about two and a half miles northwest of the city's center. As the need for steel increased, Ward and company built another mill in 1880 on 73 acres of lakefront land near where the Calumet River and Lake Michigan meet on the city's southeast side. In 1889, the two plants of the North Chicago Rolling Mill Company became part of the new Illinois Steel Company, which merged several of the largest Chicago-area mills into what was then the largest steel company in the world. In 1901, Illinois Steel became part of the even larger U.S. Steel. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Southside Mill, referred to as South Works, was the largest producer of structural steel in the world, Eventually producing the steel used to make Sears Tower, the Amoco Building, the John Hancock Center, the Wrigley Building, McCormick Place, the Picasso statue, the aircrafts that helped win World War II, and much more. At its peak, the Southworks Mill employed 20,000 people. As for the land occupied by the Southwark site, as the mill operated, it produced slag, a molten liquid byproduct of the steelmaking process, which solidifies when cooled. That byproduct, slag, was then piled into the shallows of Lake Michigan at the edge of the factory grounds. This, of course, was long before there was an EPA to stop this practice. Gradually, this slag landfill helped expand the area until it became a 589-acre peninsula. That is a lot of slag. The entirety of the mill started at 79th Street and extended to 91st Street, one of many mills in that area. Throughout the history of U.S. steel plants, there have been worker strikes, including one that began in September of 1919 that shut down half the steel industry nationwide, including mills here in Chicago. While there were skirmishes reported during the various strikes, none have the notoriety of the strike of 1937, known as the Memorial Day Massacre. The 1935 Wagner Act, a centerpiece of FDR's New Deal, guaranteed workers in the U.S. the right to bargain collectively and go on strike without threat of dismissal by their employers. Of course, there are always going to be those employers who will choose to ignore these directives. And because Chicago... After years of attempts to unionize, labor groups were informed in 1937 that U.S. Steel, part of the Big Steel Group, signed a union contract. Unfortunately, smaller steel manufacturers, referred to as, you guessed it, Little Steel, would not agree to follow suit. In protest of this decision, the Steelworkers Organizing Committee of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, Called the strike. By the way, the little steel companies included Bethlehem Steel Corp., Youngstown Sheet and Tube, National Steel Corp., Inland Steel, American Rolling Mill Company, and Republic Steel Corp. Sure, each company was not huge, but together they employed tens of thousands of workers. Newspapers of the day quoted Chicago Mayor Edward J. Kelly saying that, quote, peaceful picketing would be permitted. End quote. With that in mind, on May 26th and May 28th of 1937, the Steelworkers Organizing Committee attempted to set up picket lines at the front gates of Republic Steel at 116th and Avenue O. On both days, those picketers were chased off, leading to a call for a mass demonstration. The head of Republic Steel, Tom M. Girdler, was opposed to unionization and actively courted the Chicago Police Department for assistance in keeping protesters at bay. While police in other cities with striking workers did not initially interfere with picketing, in Chicago the police took an active role from the very beginning of the 1937 strike. According to author John Hogan in his 2014 book, The 1937 Chicago Steel Strike, Blood on the Prairie, to curry favor with Chicago police officers, management at Republic Steel allowed police to eat for free in the factory's cafeteria and even gave them an assortment of weapons, including batons and tear gas, all courtesy of Republic Two days later, May 30th, 1937, Memorial Day, a few hundred supporters of the effort to unionize met at Sam's Place, a former tavern-slash-dance club at 113th Street and Green Bay Avenue that was being used as the headquarters of the Steelworkers Organizing Committee about six blocks northeast of the Gates of Republic Steel. Locals from the neighborhood came to see what was happening. University of Chicago students and even a few church groups were in the mix. After a few speeches, the crowd headed out to Republic Steel. One of the women in the crowd was 31-year-old Guadalupe, Lupe Marshall, a whole house social worker and mother of three who was researching Mexican workers in the labor movement. Upwards of 1,500 people, 15% of them women and children, marched on Republic's plant in Chicago armed with signs declaring their right to protest. Their goal was to set up a mass picket line at the plant and encourage the thousand or so men who remained at work inside to join them in securing a union contract. The marchers were met near the plant gate at about 4:30 p.m. by 250 plus members of the Chicago police, those same police who had been fed and given weapons by the steel mill. Also at the event, various news photographers, including ones from the Associated Press and Worldwide News, and Otto Lippert, a Paramount news cameraman, there to film things. When the crowd got close enough, the police reportedly told them to disperse using choice words and threaten them with harm if they didn't leave. Molly West, a young typographical Union Local 16 member, recalled the command addressed to her by police, quote, Get off the field or I'll put a bullet in your back. What happened next is still a little unclear. Some reports say a tree branch was thrown at police. Some say a brick. Some say police fired a warning shot into the air. Some say nothing happened at all. And then... Police opened fire on the crowd. Tear gas canisters were sent into the mass of picketers. Lupe Marshall turned to see people lying on the ground, some bloodied, some not moving. The event that would come to be known as the Memorial Day Massacre had begun. The shooting only lasted 15 seconds, but approximately 200 rounds were fired. Police walked through the remaining crowd swinging their clubs. Lupe Marshall was hit in the back of the head as she tried to flee. Police used billy clubs and hatchet handles supplied by Republic Steel to continue beating even those who were prone and not offering any resistance. They dragged dying men along the ground and threw them into a pile in paddy wagons without concern for further injuries these actions might cause. Police arrested dozens of people, including the wounded, at hospitals. Four men died that afternoon, six more in the days that followed. Of the ten who died, seven were shot in the back or the side. All but four of the 54 gunshot wounds were to the side or back. One victim was shot four times. The youngest who died was a 17-year-old boy. In addition to those who died, 100 were injured, dozens by gunshots, a 10-year-old boy was reportedly one of those shot, numerous picketers were injured by blows that left dents in their skulls, many of those injured were left with lasting disabilities. Initial newspaper reports claimed the police did not fire their weapons. Thirty-five policemen reported injuries, notably no gunshot wounds, and only three required overnight hospital care. As for Republic Steel's president, Tom Girdler, after hearing the news about the Memorial Day Massacre at the Chicago gates of his company, he expressed no contrition and offered no condolences. Trade unionists called the event the Memorial Day Massacre... Republic Steel, and city officials called it the Republic Steel Riot. It's all in the phrasing. A Senate Civil Liberties Committee was convened in late June of 1937 by Robert M. Lafollette, Jr., a Republican and progressive party senator from Wisconsin, to investigate the event at Republic Steel. Chicago Police Commissioner James P. Allman said his police officers were justified in the tactics used at Republic Steel. His men were attacked while attempting to preserve the peace, Allman insisted, and only by the tactics used was a massacre prevented if the marching strikers had succeeded in entering the plant where men were at work. Lupe Marshall and many other witnesses were called to share their version of the events that fateful Memorial Day. The general editor of Paramount News, A. J. Richard, decided the newsreel footage Otto Lippert filmed was "quote not fit to be seen." End quote. He forshelved it, keeping it from the general public by claiming it might "quote incite local riot, leading to further casualties." End quote. It was later screened for the La Follette Committee and is available on YouTube. The La Follette Committee investigating the event on Memorial Day 1937 came to four major conclusions about the Memorial Day Massacre. First, the police had no right to limit the number of pickets in front of the gate as long as they were peaceful, and that a march would have resulted in peaceful picketing in front of the gate, not in a plant invasion. Second, assuming that the police were justified in halting the march, it should have been done with a minimum of violence and not in the haphazard manner with which the confrontation was handled. Third, the marcher's provocation of the police did not go beyond the use of abusive language and the throwing of isolated missiles, and that the force used by the police to disperse the crowd was far in excess of that required. Fourth, The bloody consequences were avoidable on the part of the police. Before the Little Steel strike ended later that summer, at least six other people, all with the union, had been killed by police, guardsmen, and company loyalist guards in clashes in Ohio and Pennsylvania. In none of these cases was anyone with the government or the companies held responsible. Instead, the violence inflicted on the strikers helped break the strike. With ongoing pressure from the War Labor Board, Republic Steel President Tom Girdler eventually agreed to a collective bargaining agreement in 1942, that's five years after, that included back pay and vacation money for workers fired after the Little Steel strike, In case you're wondering if there was something else in it for him, Girdler also wanted Republic to get in on lucrative government defense contracts. Girdler remained with Republic Steel until his retirement in 1956. The Paramount Newsreel footage shot by Otto Lippert was later used by the New York Police Department to demonstrate to officers what not to do in a similar situation. In 1948, when the U.S. population was 146.6 million, U.S. steel factories nationwide employed 700,000 workers. Between 1945 and 1959, there were five industry wide strikes. In 1952, approximately 80,000 Chicago area steel workers walked out for two months. Seven years later, in 1959, an even more significant work stoppage occurred when tens of thousands of workers in the Chicago area joined 500,000 steelworkers nationwide in a four-month strike. Starting in the 1970s and continuing into the 80s, the U.S. steel industry suffered a sudden collapse, which resulted in the loss of thousands of jobs U.S. Steel and other American steel companies that still utilized older, less efficient plants failed to withstand the combination of a decline in demand and the rise of less expensive imported steel. This sudden decline in demand for American steel was crushing to the livelihood of employees and mills in the Chicago area and the communities near those mills. By 1977, U.S. Steel South Works employed less than 8,000 down from their normal workforce of 11,000 just before then. Between 1979 and 1986, about 16,000 Chicago-area steelworkers lost their jobs. This sudden loss of jobs greatly affected Southeast Chicago, a working-class neighborhood that has struggled with disinvestment and population loss to this day nearly 40 years later. To understand the effect of foreign-made steel, in 1960, the United States imported less than 5% of the steel it used. By 1984, steel imports peaked at over 26%, resulting in the U.S. government acting to limit imports. Approximately 100 buildings were demolished in 1990 to prepare the South Works site for redevelopment. What cannot be demolished without great expense are the two pairs of ore walls along the north slip of the South Works at 30 feet tall and 2,000 feet long each. That is, according to signs in the area, as long as 41 CTA cars, 1.8 John Hancock centers, and 4,000 Vienna beef hot dogs laid end end Ore walls? Allow me to backtrack. During the heyday of the South Works operations, huge barges would bring ore to the north slip at South Works. Cranes would then lift the ore from the barges and deposit it between the ore walls for sorting and storage. The ore would then be transported to the blast furnace by rail when needed. On January 9, 1992, it was announced that the Southwark site would close after more than 100 years in operation. That April, the plant permanently shut down with approximately 730 people employed. Only 30 were eligible for full pensions. In reporting on the closing, the Chicago Tribune said U.S. Steel planned to commission a study to determine the best use of the site, and according to officials, quote, the acreage has many natural advantages for a mixed development of residential and commercial use, possibly including casinos, end quote. In 1999, the Solo Cup Corporation announced plans to build a new paper cup manufacturing facility on the former site of U.S. Steel Southworks, but abandoned those plans and instead invested in the expansion of its 800,000-square-foot facility, at 7575 South Costner. In 2002, the Chicago Park District acquired 16.5 acres of land that was part of the South Works Mill at 87th and Lakeshore Drive. The land, after years of abuse, was devoid of any vegetation. In order to make the land usable once again, John Marlin, a research affiliate from the Illinois Sustainable Technology Center, had an idea that would help two areas of Illinois. In downstate areas, soil from urban and rural areas gets washed into rivers, causing problems with the water levels. In the Illinois River's Peoria Lake, for example, levels have gone from 6 to 8 feet in the 1960s to just 2 feet in recent years. John Marlin proposed an idea called Mud to Parks. The idea was to take sediment from downstate Illinois, where sediment storage areas are limited, and transport it up to Chicago. To transport the sediment 165 miles from Peoria to Chicago... He needed to get the approval from the city of Chicago as well as senators and representatives from the Republican and Democratic parties, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Illinois State Water Survey, the Chicago Park District, the city of East Peoria, the Illinois Sustainable Technology Center, and others. Starting in 2004 and continuing for the next nine years, 168 mud-filled barges, each carrying 1,500 tons of sediment, used the Illinois River system to travel north to an area near the former South site. The sediment was offloaded into trucks, which moved the soil into position to be spread by bulldozers, quote, like icing on a cake, end quote, according to Marlin. By pulling the excess sediment from Peoria Lake, Marlin and his team help restore the aquatic habitat at Peoria Lake and give the 25-acre area at Southworks a fighting chance to flourish without taking soil from foreign lands or anywhere else that likely needed it. A company called McCaffrey Interests announced a multi-phased mixed-use project with a cost of $4 billion for 189 acres of the U.S. steel site in 2004 the McCaffrey team according to their website quote created an award-winning master plan which included zoning approvals for approximately 13,575 single family dwellings and high-rise units 17,500,000 square feet of retail The newly extended South Lakeshore Drive, 125 acres of open space parks with bike paths, a 1,500-slip boat marina, and a new high school, end quote. They even had a promotional video with Bill Curtis doing the voiceover for the Chicago Lakeside Development. Imagine 10 miles from downtown Chicago. Five minutes from Hyde Park, a new community, a new kind of community. One of the problems quickly noted was the lack of access to downtown, which was somewhat remedied by Lakeshore Drive being extended two miles south directly to the development site at a cost of $64 million. In 2016, the McCaffrey plan was abandoned when the company walked away without a single building being built. The following year, Dublin-based Emerald Living, along with Spanish partner Barcelona Housing Systems, was the next to show interest with an agreement to buy the site in 2017. That August, the developers and then-mayor Rahm Emanuel announced plans for up to 20,000 environmentally friendly homes in the area. Dog parks, skate parks, shopping, wind-powered turbines, a marina, and more are all on the concept sketches. And yet, in May of 2018, Emerald Living also walked away from the project, which they were calling New South Works, with a statement that hinted at, quote, environmental issues, end quote. In the first major use of the space formerly occupied at 83rd Street and the lakefront since U.S. Steel closed the site in 1992, a three-day music festival called Dave Matthews Band Caravan was held in July of 2011. The grounds were cleared of 59 tons of rubble and other debris, and 13,000 cubic yards of wood chips were spread to create paths on the nearly 200 acres the show occupied. Approximately 100,000 people showed up with few difficulties. Of course, the guests who showed up at the former steel mill grounds in flip-flops may have regretted that footwear choice. As for the portion of land covered over with the mud-to-park sediment, although it was officially named Steelworkers Park by the Chicago Park District Board of Commissioners in May of 2014, it wasn't until a rainy, unseasonably chilly day in May of 2015 that more than 100 people gathered at the site of the former U.S. Steel South Works, at 87th Street for the dedication of the 16.5-acre Chicago Park. In attendance was then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel and many from Chicago and Indiana who worked at area steel mills and were also union members. Unveiled at the event that day was a sculpture by Southeast Side artists Roman Villareal and Roman Delion that greets visitors at the entrance to Steelworkers Park. That sculpture depicts a steelworker with hard hat, goggle, lunch pail, and all, standing with his wife, their son with the family dog, and their daughter, who is holding a doll. The plaque under the sculpture, titled Tribute to the Past, reads, To all the Union men and women and their families who shared the steel dreams. Added to Steelworkers Park in April of 2018 are three Calumet steel artifacts. The largest is a 26-ton blast furnace bell that, along with the 14-ton small bell, were once used at the former Acme steel blast furnace at 107th and Burley. These two pieces helped evenly distribute iron, coke, and limestone into the furnace and seal everything off without a loss of heat or gases. The third artifact on the site is an ingot mold pattern once used at the former Bethlehem Steel Facility in Burns Harbor, Indiana. Three months later, a climbing wall opened, utilizing the ore walls with climbing routes that offer top roping, auto belays, and bouldering. In September of 2020, groundbreaking and ribbon cutting ceremonies were held at the former site of the Republic Steel Plant on South Avenue O, the same site of the Memorial Day Massacre of 1937. The $164 million development called Commerce Park Chicago is the first development on that site in 20 years. Unlike the unrealized plans for the former U.S. Steel site, Commerce Park Chicago is said to include 200 acres and 2.3 million square feet of light manufacturing, assembly, and logistics space that will support up to 1,400 permanent jobs when it is complete. Also near the Commerce Park Chicago site is an adjacent 155-acre campus. Ford is leasing the first building on that site, a 360,000-square-foot, 32-acre development at 121st and Avenue O to support its nearby factory. On May 30th, 1967, 30 years to the day of the Memorial Day Massacre, a plaque was erected by the United Steelworkers of America Committee to commemorate that horrible day. In 1981, Ed Blazek, a local resident and employee of Republic Steel, designed a new sculpture made from 100% locally produced steel it was originally sited on the property at Republic Steel, but later moved to Avenue O in 2008 and rededicated. for listening to today's episode about Chicago Steel and the Memorial Day Massacre. If you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail dot com. In the show's notes are links to video footage of the Memorial Day Massacre and links to books I'd recommend if you'd like to learn more. I will have plenty of news clippings and photos I'll post on social media throughout the week. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, please give us a follow. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Now that you know the history of the area, check out Steelworkers Park. It's pretty great. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.